Well, I don't know if you picked up on it, but that is the end of the letter to the Philippians. And so we have been in this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church of Philippi for several months now. Uh, And this is the very end. And we've in particular been looking at the theme of joy Uh, throughout this letter. It's all over the letter to the Philippians. And Paul ends his letter with a, a, a final key theme or key Uh, condition for finding joy, and that is contentment. Paul ends on the theme of contentment, the idea that we have enough, that we can be happy and fulfilled people right now, not in some hypothetical future or hypothetical scenario when we have this or do this or get this, but right now we can be happy. That's contentment. And I wanted to start there because I personally cannot think of a more counter-cultural state of being than contentment. I mean, right? It's like, how many people in your life would you describe as content people? There's always something more we can have, more we can want. And the lack of that thing makes us unhappy, makes us discontent with our lives now. I mean, it's like the spirit of the age is discontentment. I feel like that's so intuitive for, for most of us that I hardly need to make the point. But I read this this week and it just slayed me. So this guy that I'm quoting here was not writing about contentment, uh, but he kind of was. He was actually writing about the end of the world, but stick with me, okay? This, this goes somewhere. So he's writing about the preoccupations we all have with uh, the negativity around us. And he said this, but isn't the scariest possibility that there won't be any collapse, revolution, or slide into dystopia, but that you'll simply live through another five decades of a new Call of Duty game every year, iPhones getting bigger and smaller, and pop stars rotating through 70s, 80s, and 90s nostalgia. I was like, that is a great summary of our moment. And at first it made me laugh, but then I was like, that's really not funny. (laughs) See? It's like we, we, we long for disruption or change just to feel something because we are so bored and discontent with what we have. Um, I can't prove this, but it, it doesn't feel like a stretch to me to say that we live in perhaps the most discontented period of human history right now in our culture. Now, but this, this contentment problem, though, it's always been a problem. You can go back to the Greek philosophers, the Stoics, who are writing around the same time as Paul. You can look at uh, religions in particular, like Buddhism, and at the heart of them is the idea that contentment's really hard to find, but that it's necessary for human happiness and flourishing. So people have been looking at this contentment thing for a long time. And then you come to the end of Philippians, and here's Paul. And he writes this line. Listen, listen to this. He says, verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul says, I know the secret to a content life. And I read that and I thought, okay, Paul, spill the beans, man. What's the secret Now, remember with me, Paul said earlier in chapter 3, essentially he says, I'm not a finished product on anything I'm teaching you, dear Philippian church. He says, not that I've attained these things, okay? And contentment's one of those things. I don't think Paul was perfectly content all the time. But I do think Paul found something 
in his spirituality. He found something in his experience in life that made him a content person and made him worthy of imitation both then and now. So what is it? Well, Paul lays them out here. In particular, I think there are two things that Paul is convinced of. There's two things Paul is convinced are real that help to build a more content life. So if you have your Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 10, starting in verse 10. Let me uh, set this up just a little bit. So as I mentioned as we started, Paul is ending his letter here. This is the last thing he's going to say. And there's a few things that are really weird about this ending. So remember with me, we know that Paul has received a financial gift from this church. So the Philippians commissioned a member of their church, his name is Epaphroditus, to go from Philippi, presumably to Rome is what I think, that Paul is imprisoned in Rome awaiting trial. And they they commission Epaphroditus to, to send a financial gift to Paul to meet his needs. And uh, Epaphroditus almost dies on this journey. It's a pretty long way from Philippi to Rome. Paul mentions that in chapter 2. In other words, the whole reason Paul's writing this letter in the first place is to say thank you for supporting me, Philippians. He obviously has more to say, and we've covered that over these weeks. But the reason Paul hits the reply button in the first place is this financial gift. And almost every commentator of this letter points out how strange it is what Paul does. Because the convention of the day would have been to start the letter with gratitude for the gift. Not unlike today, right? Dear so-and-so, thank you for the Walmart gift card. We got our first microwave with this. That's every thank you note you've ever written. I hope you've written a thank you note, by the way. That's, That's a really important discipline. Right? You may have more you want to say in that note, but you're going to start with thank you, gratitude. Paul doesn't do that. In fact, he, he doesn't explicitly mention this gift from the church until the very end. People don't know what to do with this. You know, some people say, well, Paul's being rude because he's mad about something. And some people say maybe he just like forgot why he was writing the letter until the very end. He was like, oh yeah, by the way, thanks. I don't think any of that's true. I think Paul's doing something on purpose. I think he's up to something. I think he wants to show the Philippians something about money and contentment. I'm convinced. He has one lesson left. And this explains even how unusual Paul's thank you is. So just listen to how he sets this up. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And again, it's a little difficult to understand why Paul starts this way. Like, hey, you didn't, it's okay you didn't send me the gift right away. My, my guess is that the Philippians apologized to him in their communication, saying, hey, we meant to send this to you earlier. We're just getting it to you now. And he basically says, it's okay. Don't worry about the timing. It's fine. Don't worry about it. But then verse 11 is where it gets a little strange. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. It's like Paul is beginning his, the thank you part of this letter by saying, by the way, I didn't really need your gift. (laughs) It's like, what? Now he will go on to say, hey, this gift was actually really helpful. He'll say, I'm well supplied, I'm paid in full. That's a little later. So he gets there, but not before he he wants the Philippians to hear this. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. 
in every and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then the famous verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's like before Paul gets to the thank you, he wants to make this point. He wants the Philippians to know that his happiness and his contentment is not contingent on them. It is always rooted in Jesus, who, as Paul puts it, gives me strength. That is where his joy and his contentment ultimately come from. Now, this is the verse, verse 13, uh, that athletes put you know, all over their bodies to help so that Jesus' power helps them to hit a home run. Um, That's not what Paul means, right? Paul doesn't mean slap Jesus on it and he'll give you mystical powers to do all things, right? That's not what he means. He means in any and all circumstance, in good and bad, in plenty and want, in sickness and health, Jesus' power and presence is always available to him to obey and to find contentment and joy right now. So really what an athlete is doing by right, invoking this verse is they're saying that win or lose, I have Jesus and that's plenty for me. That's the idea. Paul is convinced, and he wants the Philippians to see this too, he's convinced that Jesus is more than enough. This is his point. Jesus is more than enough. This is the first key to contentment that Paul finds in his life. You have to believe and internalize the idea that your stuff will never be enough, that your bank account will never be enough. This is why, and this is documented, so many rich and famous people, people you think don't have any real problems, end up being some of the most worrisome and anxious people. Because there's a tendency, right, that the more you have, the more there is to worry about. There's more to be discontent with. Until Jesus is more than enough, nothing else ever will be. And notice that I say more than enough. Jesus is more than enough. Paul has learned to see in Jesus not only the the bare minimum of what he needs, but the abundant, the overflowing life that Jesus promises to those who follow him. I've come to bring life and life overflowing, life abundant. Paul has not just memorized Jesus' teaching. He actually believes when Jesus says, for example, in Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, who was the most splendorous king of the Old Testament, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of those. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Paul has trained himself to see unlike the world does. To see abundance, or what I, what I like to call the more than enoughness of our good Father in heaven, who takes care of the minutest details of his creation, things that we never seem to notice until we try, or we too would begin to believe we will always be taken care of. That's the idea. Jesus and Paul are reminding us here that the entire Bible, when you put this lens on and read the entire scriptures from start to finish, they present our God as a generous host who provides more than enough for our need and our enjoyment and our delight. 
The God of the Bible is the God of Eden, which means delight. He's the God of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. You'll notice in the Old Testament, God rarely introduces himself unless he invokes three generations of blessing. That's the idea. Every generation now a blessing, an extravagant gift from God. He's the God of the land of uh, flowing milk and honey. He's the God of streets of gold in Revelation. Again and again, God is the generous over the top that culminates in Jesus, his, his very son, who's a gift to all. This is Paul's point in verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours, church, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul is so convinced of all of this that he can say this while staring down a prison sentence and a trial before Caesar. And, and he, if you remember back earlier in the letter, he says, I might not survive this, but I'm okay. Jesus is more than enough for me. And dear Philippians, before I close this letter, please know he's more than enough for you. More than enough. We will not build contentment in a day. This is hard to find. But I do want us to practice something this week. I want us to look for signs of Jesus' abundance in our lives this week. I think part of Jesus' teaching about contentment, and it's echoed by Paul here, is to begin to notice the extravagance of God in the details of life. Right? When Jesus addresses human discontentment and anxiety, he doesn't say, go look at the big things God does. He says, look at the small things God does. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. So let's do that. It may be an unexpected good meal that you, that you weren't anticipating. Maybe it's a needed rest that God provides. Or it's a walk during a lunch break to kind of reset and to hear and see the beauty of God's creation. In our focused times with Jesus this week, if we're reading, if we're praying, if we're, if we're simply trying to be silent with him, let's focus on gratitude for his abundant care for us in the ways that we probably don't see or notice very often. And yes, there will be moments of discontentment and anxiety in your life and mind. That's part of what it means to be human. But in those moments, let's take those to God, our real emotions, our real feelings. That's what we should do. But let's end those times with a reminder to ourselves, Jesus, you are more than enough. More than enough. I know that feels simple, but I think that's the kind of habit that contented people have. People who have come to rely on the abundance of Jesus more than the accumulation of things or the temporary security that money can bring but quickly fades. Okay, this, this, this is the stuff of contentment, this kind of discipline. But Paul makes another point here, another uh, key to contentment. Yes, it begins with a deep trust that Jesus is more than enough to take care of you. But it also embraces this truth that contentment and generosity go together in the life of a believer. He wants the Philippians to know, and we need to know, that it is the act of generosity that brings real joy to him and to God. So remember, earlier Paul pointed out, hey, this gift is great, but I didn't need it. <laughs> but he starts the section by saying, but your gift brought me great joy. He actually never has used that phrase in this letter yet. 
Mega joy is the, is the word. Mega joy, great joy. Paul is saying, what really gives me joy is not that your gift put me in the black, because I would have been okay without it, but your gift was a reminder to me of your love and your partnership, and that means the world to me. That's what Paul's saying. Paul makes this clear in verse 14. He, he tells this church, he reminds them of their story of generosity to him. He says, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. That, that's a reference, I think, to his imprisonment, that they've supplied his need. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, that is when you first believed, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So Paul's joy actually goes up from this gift, from this church, not simply because it's money in his account, but because it's a reminder that he has partners in the gospel. So his contentment has gone up. His joy has gone up. But more than that, Paul rejoices in this gift, because, not because of what it does for him, but because of what it's doing in them. This is verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. This is a financial metaphor, but, but don't mistake this. Paul is speaking here of spiritual realities. Paul says, by giving, and this church has been very generous to him, Paul's saying, your financial portfolio may shrink a bit, but your spiritual growth is exponential in giving. It's changing them. It's accruing interest for them in Jesus. It, I think that's Paul's main point. There's something about giving that makes us more like Jesus, the Lord of abundance. In fact, the more they give, the more like Jesus they become, and the more they'll experience contentment that only trust in Jesus provides. These things go together. There's a direct relationship between our contentment and our generosity, because all generosity, financial or otherwise, when done in Jesus' name, is an act of worship to God. This is how Paul ends, verse 18. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Now notice the metaphor here, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. This is a reference to the Old Testament temple where when you made a sacrifice, you made an offering. It was often consumed by fire. And the imagery, right, is that the, the aroma of your offering goes up to God and it pleases and delights him. That's the imagery of the temple. Paul's saying your financial gift is like a pleasing aroma that God delights in. But it's almost crude to put it this way, but like the image, right, is that he says, your gift is like a Thanksgiving meal on the table when God walks into the room and he smells, right, the gift you've prepared and it puts a smile on his face. It's a fragrant offering pleasing to God. There's something about giving in particular that shapes us into Jesus and teaches us contentment and it pleases God in a unique way. All of those threads come together at the end of Paul's letter. So here's the bottom line on this one. I think if Paul were here right now, and we were to point out to him, listen, we struggle with contentment. Culturally, historically, we probably have more than anybody has ever had from a human standpoint. But we are discontent. Why are, Paul, why are we so discontent? 
I think he would respond. I wonder if he would respond. Well, how much are you giving away? Let's start there. Because contentment and generosity grow together. So if we want more contentment, we need to keep practicing generosity. So here's our second application, okay? Give generously. This is where Paul ends. Give generously. And I want to get really practical here because this is where God's word is taking us. So let me give you a few steps to giving. How to do this, okay? First, just start giving. It's brilliant, right? This is why I went to seminaries to come up with, with ideas like this. Just start giving. This is for those of you in particular, maybe where this is not a discipline in your life of, of giving regularly, giving generously. Uh, and that's okay because giving is really counterintuitive. It is. But just start giving. And by that I mean move through the excuses that are running through your head, maybe even right now, about why you don't do this. And start somewhere. That's what I mean, right? Whether that's like, I don't have the margin, or I'll do it once I get that promotion or that job, then I'll be able to do it, or I can't give very much, so what's the point? Okay, no, whatever those are, notice them, name them, and move through them, move past them. Remember that we serve a God of abundance, and even the smallest gift does a work in us that accrues to our account. That's how Paul puts it. I've, I have felt that accrual in my account personally, the blessing that comes through giving, that, o- that really only comes through giving. Um, it's hard to explain, but I, 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 whenever I talk about giving, I, I point this out. I am not a naturally generous person. I like to have, I like to keep things. I don't even like to spend money. I just like to, to have it. Um, not a naturally generous person. But as my wife and I have grown in this discipline of doing this, I can tell you every time I give, first to this church, uh, but also to other people and other great organizations, I uniquely sense God's pleasure and my own joy grow when, when that happens. There's something about giving. And until you start giving, you, you, you won't sense that. You won't believe me. <laughs> You have to just start. And I promise if you start, you start thinking more generosity, God will bless that. He'll bless it. Okay, second, give first, not last. Uh, if, if point one was 101, this is kind of more 201. So for those of you who do give, but perhaps it's been a while since you've reevaluated, maybe it's stagnated. Remember this principle. It, it, it actually comes from Proverbs 3.9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce. Now, this was written in an agrarian society, right? So, fine, you know, think fruits as finance. It was tempting in the ancient world, not unlike today, to sell your, first, your best stuff first, get that money, and then whatever's left over, think about giving that. Okay? Proverbs says No. Take the best fruit, the first fruit, that's the idea, and give that to God first. So as we might put it, right, when you look at your budget, uh, decide what to give first. Then think about saving and spending. In other words, our giving is first, and it should make us a little uncomfortable. We should be fitting our saving and our spending around giving and not the other way around. That's counterintuitive as that is. That's the principle laid out here. Our contentment and trust in Jesus grow as we give more. So give 
first and not last. Maybe take time this week to look again at your giving and ask yourself, does this, does this look like first fruits or does it look like leftovers? And, and how can I grow? Okay, give first, not last. Third, give to prioritize, give to the local church mission. Okay, as I said previously, all generosity is an act of obedience and is pleasing to God. But the emphasis in the New Testament, and this is no different in Philippians, is on giving to the mission of the local church. Okay? Paul makes it clear that he sees this gift from the Philippians, not simply as a gift personal to him, but as a gift toward the mission of planting churches throughout the Roman Empire, which is his calling. He makes that clear, I think, in verse 16, where he says, you continue to give to me even when I was planting a church in Thessalonica. I wasn't even in your town anymore. So their giving wasn't even directly for their benefit, but for the multiplication of churches through gospel proclamation. Paul is so enamored with the spirituality of their giving, the the, the maturity of the Philippian church's giving, he will point to them in another letter to a different church, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. When he's trying to get them to start giving, he'll point to this church and say, be like them. That's the kind of incredible generosity toward God's mission that the Philippian church had. They knew they were making an investment in God's plan A for the world. Remember, when Jesus ascends to heaven and he launches his mission to bring the kingdom to all corners of the earth, the only thing he leaves behind is the church. He says, this is the plan. This is my plan. And nothing's going to stop it. The Philippians say, we want to make an investment there. So let me just say, Christ community, like this, this church, is very Philippian in that way. <laughs> and I say this whenever I talk about generosity because I, I believe it so profoundly. This is a very generous church. Very generous church. And I hope that you can see, especially for those of you who may be newer this year, that your generosity goes directly to the mission of multiplying disciples and churches all over the metro. In fact, during a a global pandemic, I don't know if you remember that, uh, with a shaky economy, right, with a lot of uncertainty, you all gave such that we were able to find two permanent homes for churches in our city in the Christ community family. And I can say with Paul, you and you only gave even when we labored in Shawnee and downtown. God's plan A for the world is the local church. We believe that around here. It's an audacious statement. But we believe that. And your generosity is moving that mission forward. And I can also say with Paul, even more than the doors our, your generosity opens for our church, is this, it, it is a sacrifice pleasing to God. Your giving, our giving, pleases God in a unique way. And that's something that we want for you and not from you. So hear my heart on that. If we excel still more in our, in our giving, we will ex- excel still more in our contentment. There's a reason Paul saved this to the end. He wanted contentment and giving to be the last thing this church, think with me, heard read aloud as they gathered together and and his letter was read. He wanted, in fact, to end the letter with a story of their generosity, reminding them, remember what you did. God noticed that. 
what it means to him. So I want to end with a story of my own. We recently actually posted this story on our Facebook page, but one of our members uh, shared about her journey through nursing school. Uh, so just listen to this. This is what she wrote. She said, my very first semester, there was a mix-up with my address. So it wasn't until a week before classes began that I received a bill for over $3,000. The church came alongside me and helped me find the funding I needed within days. At the same time, God connected me with a, another church member who was a part of a, an organization that gives scholarships, and he had already, God had already provided the $3,000 I would need for the next semester through that grant with them. I had church members who knew about my situation, and they would send me a card with several hundred dollars in it or leave one at the church with my name on it. I also had a believer give me a very large interest-free loan for my last year of school. I sit here in tears as I think of all the provisions God has given me using the connection of people within the church. My church family and community group all came alongside me in support and in prayer. Even my friends from other churches became very interested in my success. This, is very, this, this last line is very Paul. Their support financially was miraculous, but the excitement I see in my church family, in those who love me, is overwhelming and fills my heart with unspeakable joy. Now think about this with me, okay? The generosity of God's people. In this, in this story, in this very situation, an offering pleasing to God has now equipped a disciple of Jesus to serve countless people through her vocation, right? Why does God love generosity so much? Why does it bring him so much joy? Think about it. It's because generosity uniquely ripples through generations. It touches thousands of people. Just like, get this, the Philippians' generosity to this apostle church planner named Paul is still accruing interest in you and me. Without them, we are not here. Without this, genero this small generosity, right? what is the mission of the church? It ripples out. It's still rippling out. Who will be here in a hundred years because of our small acts of obedience and generosity? God only knows. I have no idea. But that's the kind of joy we can have in giving. Jesus is more than enough, and he can use the simplest obedience, the smallest generosity, to change the world. That's what he's been doing all along. So let's give generously. And remember together that Jesus is always more than enough. Let's pray to him now. Father, we, we end this time of... of of being in your word, remembering and rejoicing that you are our good shepherd who cares for us, who protects us, and you are our generous host who provides more than enough, not simply for our needs, but for our delight and our enjoyment. You love to take care of us. May that reality penetrate our hearts deeply this week. May we see your abundance in all the details of life. And may our response in generosity and giving be an offering, a fragrant offering to you. And a moment for our neighbors in our world to stand up and say, there's something different about these people. They must worship a generous God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.